Dr. Kuntz, it is a new year so far as the fiscal calendar is concerned. The BRICS shift has occurred. And while I think in December, mass immigration in the United States was the largest ever recorded, it's, you know, Thursday morning, banks are open, there's food in the grocery stores, everyone's going to go on more or less as normal. This week, though, there is some other news that is, I think, telltale of, of what's maybe coming, or at least what we're going to talk about today. So it's definitely coming in our conversation. And a couple of these things are different sets of documents being released of local people, legal teams, authorities. It's going to be a whole diverse smattering of people researching, discovering, exposing the voter fraud that took place in, in 2020, and thereby really exposing a, a level of corruption in our government that most people just did not believe was there. Many still do not believe is there, but now is there are people now who do believe it's there and they're fighting that whether they can win or lose a different thing. But so combine that with the release just now, it was supposed to be postponed and some of it's postponed, but now a lot of it's out. The Epstein flight logs officially released uh, links to these, these documents, by the way, uh, are provided in the show notes today. The Epstein logs, lots of names, lots of noise about the evils of it all. And I'm kind of in my own pious prayerful rage about the evils of it all, but the the number of government officials that are implicated in this as well going to lead to a election cycle in this 2024 that doesn't look much better no matter what way you sit back and I mean if if you're cool in your castle with your feet up in popcorn watching this thing burn then you got a show coming let me tell you yeah it's going to be like put put down the movies. Those are boring compared to what it looks like is going to happen. I mean, it's already happening. If you watch, that's why X has become such an independent reporting platform. That's the last thing I kind of want to link to and, and show a shout out to. First off, Mad Christian Mondays, a news resource that I can only have my name attached to. <laughs> I, I don't do it. Um, there's a group of people that do it and it's, it's kind of headed by one mind. But as a news resource, an independent news resource, its primary job free newsletter every week at madpxm.com. His primary job is just to filter all the noise so you can get some of the actual goings on so you can tell what's actually going on. The only way that happens is independent reporting now. That is the new order that has happened. They want to talk about a new world order that is coming. Yeah, well, th then the new world order is going to have independent reporting outside of it <laughs> and, and not in it. And, and that's what it, this is. There's lots of individuals out there doing what they have a phone and they and they're walking around recording stuff now of course it, it it's pay to play everywhere you go but with that said there are some reporters out there and some groups and networks that you can begin to trust as you're searching for the truth about what's going on in your neighborhood or, or in your county right those people exist and finding them is important so the last link if you look in the show notes from me this week is to a it, personal or a single individual reporter named Terrible on Twitter. And she's recommending 10 other reporters, all of whom are independently researching and pursuing and have been pursuing the Epstein case files from the beginning. And so if you want to go find that rabbit hole, you can. I actually, I'm not going to chase those rabbit holes, right? I followed one of those wrecks on my Twitter feed so I can make sure that I have an independent reporter showing up in my, my feed 
if, if the algorithms will let it, right? Pushing toward exposing the real issues, like those documents that did in fact get released today. Of course, it's kind of hard to miss that if you're looking around. Okay. So to weave this all together into an actual question, Dr. Kuntz, and, and the topic, in fact, that we do have today coming toward us, the rise of independent reporting, the the exposure of levels of corruption, including perversions and uh, and wickednesses, into the deepest levels of our government as as treasonous acts, uh, with many more foreign involvements to come, immigration upon our shores, and a new movie called Civil War. It's going to be about how we're all going to fight it out, and they're going to make a movie about it first. So it can't happen yet, but maybe maybe we should think. Hmm. I think the notion of corruption is something that people were only shocked by because Americans spend vastly too little time thinking theoretically about something. They pay way too much attention to what is practically going on. And maybe that sounds silly at first because you think, is it possible to be too practical? Yes, it is. Because if you never stop and think about what in theory, right? in in some kind of ideal could happen to a given system. And this is true whether you're trying to build a house and you just refuse to make blueprints or you refuse to ever look at the blueprints to see where they actually installed things, right? You're just kind of poking holes in the ceiling trying to figure out where your HVAC system is, right? If you never stop and think about a system as such, you really can't understand what is happening to it practically right now. And that's something where because people were taught, and these are the theories, most of us get our theories from things like movies. That's why the A24 movie coming out about a coming civil war does matter, even if I'm not going to watch it. And I think it's stupid. And uh, you could spend 10 minutes coming to some of the same conclusions that maybe they will usefully come to. Even so, most people are going to get their theory of how the world works from movies. And if not that, from a very cartoonish version of particularly history they were taught in school. Because of that, people are like, oh, wow, a democratic system is completely corrupted by money. I, I wonder if Plato ever talked about this. <laughs> you know, so the, as, the in count, as in count, we're better. Yeah, we right. Get it right. We're well, the good ones. Right. Yeah. And, and the idea that we're not subject to the same temptations or that our our system will be different from all others, or that it could integrate a an unlimited number and variety of human beings who would all want to function within the American democratic system the same way that you know Methodists were doing in the 1840s when Tocqueville visited their village or something is totally nuts and has never happened anywhere. Nonetheless, the reason that we're willing to think that it's going to work or that we won't be corrupt or that the, the varieties of corruption are only about money and not about votes, or only about politicians and their you know sexual predilections, and not also about the way that the entire system is operating, that somehow you could have personal corruption without the system itself being corrupt, because the system is immune to the vices of the people inside of it. All of that is really only possible, and it's really only possible to be shocked by this stuff if you've never stopped and thought about every other republic or every other democracy or every other place where people needed to vote. Because of that issue, I think of civil war, 
is one where we're going to be taken for a ride and we already are. So in this movie, if we can just start out by describing it, the, <laughs> I, it's just, it's so stupid. I, 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 I have trouble doing this somehow California and Texas are fighting the federal government, which is called loyalist or something like that. And somehow Florida and things next to it are also their own thing. Right. Cause DeSantis didn't want to play with Abbott. See, and then <laughs> when Newsom has like a mo he, he dies suddenly, you see. And, and when that happens, everything falls apart and a, a radical, powerful Republican barbarian man like Trump runs his way to governorship and they yeah. join forces against, you know, it's easy to do this. Stuff. Right. It's nonsense yeah. though. It's nonsense. It's, nonsense. it's yeah, it, it, it is. It, it also, it also does something that I'm not surprised that people who make movies are doing, which is it completely ignores the function of religion in American politics. Amen. Yeah. That is that California at this point, barring, I mean, California is huge. We have a lot of listeners in California. People are sometimes surprised. Some of our biggest listener states are Washington State and California. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was up there, but California is often is generally higher. And there are a lot of, you know, it's just a large place, right? Nonetheless, if you look at even sort of, quote, underground uh, discussions of California politics, it's going to be somebody who's a Republican, but he's totally fine with gay marriage or something. Yeah. So I would not... suggest that that California as a as a place, if it is not unified by a liberal hammer, you know, let the right. reader understand that. Yeah. Soft right. use of the word liberal. If it's not held under a hammer, it's going to fracture and it'll yes. be the, the, the place where the Civil War would be most obviously county to county. I mean, really yes. obviously county to county. Okay. It's, it's so scattered and broken, right? It is. And and that, that gets us into something where when we hear the word Civil War in the United States, we don't think of a Roman Civil War. We don't think of a Civil War in Rwanda. We think of our own Civil War in the 19th century. There There are indeed some parallels and the one that has come up recently is the idea of a major party presidential candidate being kept off the ballot because in 1860, before the Civil War kicks off, if you want to vote for Abraham Lincoln in the Deep South, they don't really have a primary system where you go somewhere on a certain day and you pick the guy that you want for the president of the United States. You are voting for delegates who are going to pledge to vote for Lincoln or Bell or whoever else is up, Stephen Douglas, in 1860. And in 10 states in the South, so 10 is a much larger percentage of the states in 1860 than it is today, but still that's five times more than the current number of places where you may not be able to vote for Trump. We'll see. In 10 states, no one would publicly pledge himself to vote for Abraham Lincoln. Okay. Including states, I believe Tennessee was among them, that that would turn out during the actual Civil War to have a very large unionist minority. Okay. So people who would turn out to be very loyal to Abraham Lincoln. Still nobody was willing to publicly say, I'm gonna I will vote for Lincoln if you vote for me, right? Because that's how the process works. So people have drawn that parallel that the system, the electoral system doesn't work quite the same way, but that in certain parts of the country, certain states, you are now not able to vote for a major party candidate. Couple differences from today. Number one, 
in Colorado as of December 19th and Maine as of December 28th. Allegedly, Trump is off the ballot. That's being appealed to the Supreme Court. It also has in both states <laughs> very, very much energized the Republican Party. Of course. Yeah. Uh, and and what what that means and what is so different from 1860 is that in 1860, there is no Republican Party in Mississippi. There is no Republican Party in Florida. There is no Republican Party in Georgia. So it's not just that, you know, nobody was courageous. Nobody wanted to organize anybody else. When we think of the Civil War, we tend to think about sections. And that's the way that this movie is setting itself up. Here are your sections. Now, I think the sections are stupid, right? I personally believe, for instance, that Nevada would have to align with California in anything because it is functionally a colony of California. Culturally. Military. Yeah, yeah, military. <laughs> right. Compound, really. Right. I mean, yeah, right. You know, so that that map is dumb, whatever you could come up with other maps. We still tend to think about the notion of a civil war as a as a geographic reality, as if the sections represent something. But think about Maine, for example, right? It is it is the top of New England. It is generally democratic to independent in whom it elects. Nonetheless, the idea that you just can't vote for Trump at all in the state of Maine has kicked off a a big backlash. And in fact, only one out of, I want to say maybe five, they have five members in their congressional delegation, might be four, might be five. Only one of those people supported the decision of their secretary of state to keep Trump off the ballot. Everyone else, despite not being Republican or not being, in Susan Collins's case, a very good Republican, <laughs> is is saying, no, you should let people vote for Trump if they want to. Even Colorado, as sort of lame as our Republican Party is, has had a similar reaction. So we're dealing with a situation where thinking geographically is is a very big category error. Now, can I, can I suggest yeah. macro geographically, but you do want to think geographically in your locality with regard to the same kind of things in your locality. So this is, this is something maybe, maybe more to ponder than that. I have some kind of clear cut answer for everybody, but in your locality, we tend to think of certain places as completely aligned. And maybe we think about that on a, on a municipal basis or on a county basis. And sometimes we think about that on a state basis, right? And the best way to, to look into things like this is either to look exactly at what is around you or to look at a place that's small enough that you can actually analyze it, right? So a place that's small enough that you could actually analyze it, that would be somewhat analogous to a deep South state during the civil war would be like a Wyoming where you could actually isolate out of a very small population. I it's, I think it's still the smallest Vermont is, is close, but, but maybe second smallest you could, if you took everything in and around Jackson hole in Wyoming in Northwestern Wyoming, that would be, that would align culturally with our regime. M Probably almost nothing else would. Maybe even Laramie would align ultimately 
with some kind of resistance to the regime, maybe, right? But you could kind of isolate it because the population is sufficiently small. It's also, <laughs> when you're actually on the ground, it's a lot bigger than the tiny population would make you think. So it's very different from an Eastern state that way. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. But if you drilled down and you went to Jackson, Wyoming, you would be, you would find that you're dealing with a mixture, maybe not neighborhood by neighborhood, but certainly on the county level, because your service personnel, your actual fly fishing guides, probably some Hispanics, some of whom are legal, some of whom are illegal, kind of a common mix. Some of those guys are not going to be voting, but when you're talking about a situation of civil war, you're not talking about voting anymore. Those guys may or may not align against the regime, whereas the people who have moved at least seasonally from Connecticut or California are obviously going to align with the regime. They're, they're completely tied up with it. They are it in many respects, especially when, when the Fed meets in Jackson Hole. So the difficulty here is that, especially when, when you're talking about normal people, okay, whose alignment is not going to be clear, you are dealing with a situation where you're almost talking like on your street. Yes. Who is what? Yes. And that's not a situation like 1860. So it is true that in 1860 and all the way through all turmoil connected to the American Civil War, there is dissension in the North and the South about their own war effort, whether they should go to war, how they should prosecute the war. That's all there, right? And that was there on the level of certain units in the Union Army, particularly the Army of the Potomac, which was your more Eastern Army, the, what, what they called Western, what we call Midwestern states were a little more uniformly Republican, and, and thus their soldiers were too. They also faced a different kind of a war, a harder war that made them more dead set against the South. But the amount of dissension is small enough that the incidents that would push against the Union war effort in the North by Northerners are few enough to be easily remembered and counted on the fingers of one hand, the biggest of which is the New York City draft riots. Crucially, the New York City draft riots are largely prosecuted by Irish immigrants. So the idea that somehow street, you know, block by block, neighborhood by neighborhood, county by county, we are having to figure out who is for or against something when you get the kind of polarization that's that's already there, obviously, politically, but in any situation of civil war has obviously more, you know, graver consequences. We're we're not dealing with a situation like our own civil war. We're just we're just not. Right? We're not. And it doesn't therefore provide the parallels that we're looking for. No, no. We got to look. I mean, you already pointed us to this years ago, right? You pointed us to the Spanish Civil War. Um, you suggested to me at least one point that the, we're more like in a revolutionary period. I I just think of it as it's just a, it's a modern situation. There, there, it's not like a scenario we've seen before. And I would suggest that before we even worry too much about bullets, we just understand the civil war is here. The, the regime is enacting a civil war against its former people, its former country. 
on the basis of uh, what corruption and pedophilia, or among other things, but that there has been a fifth generation, a psyop, put upon us for I don't know when, when did it start? You've you've said to me, Doctor Kuntz, you know when do you want to go back to? And, and it's also great, right? And and I think of my 1992 Nirvana album, and I'm like, uh, yeah, you're right, you're right. That was not so great, <laughs> you know. Um, and so <laughs> like, when do we go back? And and yeah. if I ask the question. You know, where in in the time before the in the time since the television became the father of the home, where has anything but the present been prophesied? What that storytelling device has done as a unifier against the former religion of Christianity that had watered this land with its own telling tales of the government and the mammon and all the rest of it, but not much tale of Christ. You know, what that has done to us, you know, how are we going to go back? Where will we go back to? And, and you know, the uh, the exposure of uh, Captain Americana as as being the myth from the beginning and the the regime at present as being just an extension of really global powers in, in the World War II uh, results and, you know, the elite minds or uh, thought processes of the way Europe uh, approached the country uh, or the, the masses versus the way that former, and you've talked about this, former uh, American patriots, uh, you know, landowners who would like consider it their duty to go to the military and serve the country for the good of the country. How all of that has shifted with the World War II, World War One, global banking, Federal Reserve. I mean, it all happens at one time, right? And meanwhile, I mean, I'm, I'm off on it now, but like the loss of ethnic ties divided us as well. So all these immigrants coming from the South, they're going to hang together ethnically for a generation. But the the elites believe that it would just get them into the casino. They'll start pushing that button over and over again, throwing the coins in, eating their candy. It's going to happen, right? That's half the game right there. And we're already in a civil war. That's my point. And, and it's being done to us. Is it by our own? Some of them, obviously. Is it by our own? All of them? Probably not. I, I hope there's good people out there somewhere, but like like the nurse I listened to yesterday said is a about twenty minute talk. You know, all the all the nurses of conviction quit. So you're gonna go to the hospital now? Have fun with that. Right. That, that, that was her that was her last few moments, right? Like like we're we're under attack somehow. And we have to acknowledge that. And after the bullets start flying in my neighborhood, I I really do want to know who my neighbors are. I need to know who the guy down the street is. Right. Right. Because we want to be like, hey, shooting bullets is stupid. Let's not do that right now. <laughs> let's 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 watch our main front street entrance and see if we can find anybody who also seems to want peace around and like help. Right? Because whatever's going on with whoever's trying to fight, it's going to be above our pay grade. I think that's pretty key. Right. And I'm talking as a pastor. Right. I'm thinking about my my crossroads here, which is pretty quiet right now. So. I went off there a little bit, Dr. Coons. I, I know you got something out of it. Yeah, I, I think I think modern people are by definition amnesiacs. They hmm. they forget whatever it is that they ever heard and and they haven't, you know, honestly in the whole scheme of things heard very much. That is possible partly because of our rootlessness. It's possible partly because we have been convinced that technological change is the same thing as change in human beings. And that makes us readily receptive to the idea that a difference in scale is a difference in kind. By which I mean this, that 
if the scale of something is much bigger than it was in a previous time, let's say that television or the internet reach far more people than newspapers or word of mouth did, Mm -hmm. and it reaches them faster, that that creates a difference in kind in how human beings will react to a situation of domestic unrest, for example, right? A riot in a city, the onset of a civil war. I, I don't actually believe that. You can find not only parallels in different forms of media moving more slowly so that events take place more slowly, but I don't actually think it's a difference in kind. So I give you an example. I got you. Yeah, is that good. is that from 1763, when the French and what we call the French and Indian War ends, America begins to be extremely heavily taxed in order to pay for not only the costs that that war incurred, but also keeping enough British troops here to defend what they had won, including the Canada's against both anything else that the French might want to do from the South and particularly against the Indians. And, and we try to keep English settlers east of the Appalachian mountains so that they wouldn't break the treaty line with the Indians. All of that required vastly more people, more troops, more money, right? That's, that's where the taxation and no taxation without representation, that's really what that is. And the various acts that the British government goes through with more or less clumsiness is an attempt to actually make their best, wealthiest, most paying colonies safer. That was the idea, right? Because you're talking about a time in which information doesn't spread very fast, that puts a 12-year gap between the onset of everything that's going to upset everyone so much. There, obviously, there's stuff before it, but let's just limit it for understanding you got a 12-year gap between 1763 and Lexington and Concord. Okay. The Declaration of Independence comes a year after that. That that gap would obviously be much smaller in a modern situation. Okay. And the government's ability to react to other people organizing, coming together, forming correspondence committees, forming <laughs> secretive anonymous groups, you know, is that the same thing as a group chat? I don't really know, right? But the idea of anonymity, which is very important to a lot of people on the internet today, exists in revolutionary times because of the fear of reprisal by the colonial governments and the various colonial governors that they're sending who are getting increasingly harsh, particularly in New England and cracking down on people who are upset about the measures that the government in London has been taking against the colonists or with the colonists. They think of it as against. Yeah, all of that is taking more time because you're talking about ships sailing across the Atlantic and newspapers being printed and then being circulated and do they get to the backwoods and all of that. I don't really see that, however, as a difference in kind from what we are dealing with right now, where we have, because of our situation, okay, we have a problem of... I don't even know who I'm living next to. And the person that I'm living next to might have an allegiance that I think of as despicable, which is a shift within everybody's lifetime from, well, he's a Democrat, right? Or he thinks it's okay if the British government sends troops to Boston. That wasn't a big problem in 1730, right? So we're dealing with a situation where radicalization is is treated as something like 
strange, right? You're becoming increasingly radical. People are becoming increasingly radical. They have increasingly intense thoughts about who their neighbor is and what his legitimacy is within this polity or what, what remains of this polity, okay? This is not strange. This isn't even new, okay? And yeah, things like this happened before the American Civil War, but they happened in regionally clearer ways that didn't make daily life where you are subject to upheaval. If you look at our revolution, almost everywhere, even including New England, but New England is the only region that has any kind of unity, almost everywhere has what come to be called patriots and loyalists, neighborhood by neighborhood. And yeah, that that is skewed, right? So the people who end up leaving the United States, most of them, called loyalists, many of whom go to Canada, they're basically the reason that American English and Canadian English sound similar because they are us in a big way. Okay. Those people, yeah, they are generally more affluent than the people who come to be called patriots generally. Okay. Even in the South where the patriots are a little wealthier than they are in the North. Okay. But they are from each other's neighborhoods. The governor of New Jersey, who comes to be basically in charge of the loyalist effort, particularly in the occupied areas of New York, Philadelphia, thus also New Jersey, is Benjamin Franklin's only son. Okay. So here's here's like your your big founding father. Here's your guy who has become himself radicalized. Within 10 years of the start of the revolution, he has become totally convinced that what he had always thought needed to happen, which is that Britain and America are linked. We are a British people. We are British people in the new world. He comes to be convinced they hate us. They don't care about us. They don't understand us. While his son, William, comes to be convinced we have nothing without them. It's also helpful because... There is, there is not only geographic, but also just life distance between the people governing the colonies and the people living in them. I think that parallels much better with today than what was going on before our own civil war, where there's a very big difference between Southern planters and everybody else, including other, other white Southerners. But there's not nearly so much income inequality as we deal with today. So that people who generally would have reasons to support our regime live lives that are vastly different than average people, even other average people who agree with them. So I just give you an example is that the New York Times is currently very, very worried that the big outflow from the protests controversies on various Ivy campuses is going to make the Ivies appear not so much. They're not going to close down. Like a lot of colleges are closing down or are in danger of closing down since COVID because student populations are down because money is down because right. The Ivies are not in danger of that. They, they have so much money. I mean, Harvard is basically just a hedge fund. And then there's like some, they, ha they also have some classes at the hedge fund, right? But the danger that the New York Times is worried about is, will Harvard become something just for one side of the political spectrum? I think this is really funny 
Yeah, it is. Sure. That's hilarious. <laughs> right. Like, well, we, like what were they before? Yeah. I, I think it's really, but the significance there is they didn't really realize how isolated they were, how mm -hmm. different they were. Right. And the backlash against them or the fact that Christopher Rufo is using the tactics they've been using for 50 years to take down figures of cultural prestige. They, they, they just sort of woke up and out. Oh, wow. We are so different. No one likes us or the only people who like us are people who already agree with us mm -hmm. at the point where the people in charge of a regime realize how isolated they are or how separate they are. That is when I think we're beginning to have change of significance is a civil war in the offing or are we being shown movies about a potential civil war? What kind of American are you, right? If we're being shown those things, are they, you know, trying to get us ready for it? I maybe. I think what is going on right now that is highly significant is that people are beginning to realize that their allegiances or their sense of what the country is for are so vastly different that they begin to feel they can't they can't really live with each other. I want to talk about politics taking on kind of religious significance, but I want to, you know, stop before we go there exactly. It's a bigger question. Yeah, well, and we're primed for division again. And, you know, whether it was the newspaper or the, you know, the talking idol box, uh, which has amplified the way we experience time, if not time itself, it, it is all about a single storyline uniting. And in this case, clearly the amalgamum is a, a uniting in our divisiveness. Like the, the major story that all of the stories bring together is what you just said. We're being divided. We are skeptical of each other. Even our friends are sometimes our enemies. And you never know really, because sometimes the flag and the banner changes. And, and that's what happened again in 2020 so much that now, you know, it's, can you talk about these things with everybody, right? People walk a little more afraid. We're primed for division. And that can be a number of things. It can just be one more part of a fifth generation PSYOP, which is just to keep you isolated and incompetent. They don't actually want to shoot you. They just want you to stay away, right? And so they they make you afraid of all these kinds of things. And knowing that we're heading into 2024, one way or the other, like the whole world's got to have a vested interest in this thing, right? And so you got a lot of finances getting poured into this thing. And those finances aren't going to wield guns. They're going to wield storylines, right? And the storyline that is being given to you, me, Adam, any of us that are listening to this show is that, that the division is insurmountable and will lead to conflict, right? And indeed, I mean, that's, I'm, so I'm agreeing with you yeah. in totality here, Adam, really. And that, that, you know, what are they going to do with that? I mean, I think they could, they could paper that over with another foreign war somewhere else in six months. They throw a big old smoke screen and some colored flags and some guy shouting and the, and the, the ghost of Taiwan or whatever, right? And here we are. You know, so we do move pretty quick, but there's been a lot of people whose story of civil war isn't the regime. And they're in fact now not listening to the regime at all. And they're paving their own ways. And if their stories kind of converge somewhere where shooting is the option, right? That's where we end up in like a, a different kind of place. And I think where what I, I'm, I'm really taking this whole thing like from a different angle, but 
I think we agree. And so what happens then is the the, the military fractures. I I unless the military is entirely one thing, but I have a funny feeling you got a civil war. It's inside those walls too, right? And so how does that happen? Where can we point to that? The American Revolution, I think, is a great example of what the neighborhoods are like, of the fear, of you know, you're kind of picking sides and eventually waving banners, right? And and people start to move. You know, that all makes sense. But you know, <laughs> when you have your your militia groups as scattered and dispersed as they are in America with as many weird cult things going on there. How does that come together as anything other than a further division and fracturing? And so in all of this, you know, my warfare here is to proclaim a unification that, that there's more of us than them. We've talked about this already. And that while indeed my neighbor might be sold out to the regime and all sorts of stuff, and I may not be able to convince him really about, you know, whether he's going to listen to his doctor about this medical decision he's going to do. When it comes to the pedophiles downtown, a lot of people start to listen. And so I would suggest that while we are primed for this, and it may be out of our hands entirely that people shoot and you're, you're going to be the expert on, you know, what a modern civil war really does look like compared to me. I, I'm not, I'm, I'm guessing I'm, I'm making it up. But I do believe that I'm not making up the fact that a unifying story of hope, of virtue, of truth, of sustainability, of a creator who is trustworthy, those things are, there's a lot more people willing to listen to that. And there's a lot more people believe in those things than maybe we've let ourselves admit in our circles, whatever those may be. And not everyone is quite as willing as <laughs> the SSID uh, taking mom you know, with her, her, her weak husband to throw the kids into the trauma, you know, uh, <laughs> the trauma of trans life. But many people are, are in fact just being quiet. And I think 2024 is a year where if they're going to put us into a civil war, then I'm going to talk out against it. <laughs> uh, or at least I'm going to talk out about how those of us who are poor need not get riled up by those who make promises far away, no matter what they are. Okay. I mean, I, I am just more of a pessimist than you. This is awesome. That's the best thing I've ever heard you say, Dr. Koontz. You made me an optimist last year. Well, That's beautiful. yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm I intentionally mean, trying to be optimistic. So take that, it. Yeah, that's absolutely. fine. Well, I I'm, I'm not an optimist on, on broad scales because the bigger the human group gets, the stupider it gets. And that's Amen. just the way it goes. Like if you are talking to 500 people, you have to speak more slowly and more, and, and more simply than if you're mm -hmm. talking to one person. That's just that's just the way it goes. So if you're talking about 50,000 people, they're going to respond to like, oh, you know, basically <laughs> like that's right. And so, yeah, if you're talking about some kind of primal motivation, like I want to protect children, mm -hmm. that's obviously going to draw in more people. Yes. And the idea that I'm trying to explain to you why, you know, we need to keep the electoral college, right? Because the 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 vast group of people is, I mean, if you think about who came up with the electoral college, you're talking about on any given day at the Constitutional Convention, you know, several dozen men, highly educated. Yeah. Okay. And most people still don't understand it. And they still don't understand it, yeah. right? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> most people today don't at all, right? It's it's completely a, a dinosaur right. in the thinking. Yeah, totally. And so if I'm talking about large groups of people, 
I'm, I'm talking about things that are extremely simple, extremely simple motivations. And that, that also has to account for the idea that a lot of people are never going to be able to take any kind of abstract idea and be motivated by it. And that's fine. That's not a knock on them. That's just the way most human beings are built. Patriots and loyalists were not solely born out of abstract considerations about monarchy or something. Correct. They were born out of, this is what the other guys in my neighborhood are doing. Region, area, whatever. Neighborhood is, you know, <laughs> there's almost no urban neighborhoods in America in 1775. But what you're dealing with is something where unless it's a primal motivation, the vast majority of human beings will not be moved by it. Yes, I agree. Yep. Because of that, I don't see the divisions in the United States as entirely manufactured by non-primal agencies. Some of the divisions are primal. People in New Hampshire are always going to have little sympathy with and for people in Alabama and vice versa. There's distance, there's heritage, there's... I've never even met anybody from there, whatever. And because of that, some of the divisions, which, and you're right to examine them in the military because that happens in both the revolution and the American Civil War, is that divisions among people with military experience or actively in a military at the time, and that obviously has a lot more to do with the Civil War than with the re revolution, they, they divide very readily, okay? Because now is a chance for them to use and somebody like Ulysses S. Grant seemingly doesn't even have any other skills other than being in a military. Now is a time for them to come to the fore, for them to use what they have in a way that's going to be meaningful, important, helpful. Yeah. So whatever. this is like this is like Rome a little bit then, where it's allegiance to the general kind of defines where where things go. Do you think that there is that kind of unity within the military right now no or yeah right no. right no because the military is to some extent a microcosm of the united states of america yeah yeah right so there's gonna be allegiance to like captains it's like small groups and stuff i mean the, the guys well, who live with each other right well i mean yeah i mean that's going to be part of it is going to be who the individual men are and how convicting they are i mean grant and and sherman really don't have much of a career to speak of despite their combat experience in the Mexican war, they don't really have much of a career before the American civil war. And that's partly because politically being a Southerner is much more advantageous in the pre-civil war American military than afterward. So you also have political dynamics that obtain before a certain date, before Lexington and Concord or before Fort Sumter. And then what happens in a situation of civil war, and this is why I, I don't agree that we're actually in a civil war, except in some sort of metaphorical sense. But before a civil war, you can have political conditions that continue to obtain, right? Think about what the debate was about what's going on in the Ivies. It's not about whether we're going to continue having affirmative action, which is a way to ensure certain racial quotas, generally speaking, in American universities, especially elite universities, which also then affects who the American elites are or will be, right? We had a debate about who gets included in those quotas. Okay. So the rhetoric was not about Claudine Gay or whatever was it? Who was the lady at Penn? Not, oh, I don't know, but $900,000 salaries is way too was much. It, I, was it Amy <laughs> Gutman? I can't remember. It doesn't anyway, matter. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it was it was about whether Jews go somewhere in that set of considerations. 
That was the debate. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it was about rhetoric against Jews. Because of that, you're still dealing with the same system. You're, you're just talking about tweaking the system. It's, it's like saying we're going to get rid of the Electoral College. You're still governed by the United States Constitution, allegedly, or in some sense, right? Once you hit a situation of actual war, those bets are now off. Now Grant from Ohio can go somewhere in a military. He's not going to get promoted to anything, really, because the pre-Civil War American military heavily favors Southerners. That's just the way it was. Okay. Washington is never going to get a British commission before our civil war, our, our our first civil war, our, our revolution. So you're dealing with situations where, yes, there are already divisions. Okay. But before 1774, 1775, George Washington is not thinking, you know, I, I think I would like to go to war against King George the third. What happens when you get an actual civil war is that all political conditions become up for grabs. That's a little bit different from right now, today, 2024, where people are having thoughts like, I don't think this is legitimate or I'm not <laughs> like, like if you're, and I have, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing cause it's like, how long does this take? But if you if it's 2024 and you or your you know significant other or your neighbor or something is just beginning to think, what if our elections are not free and fair? You know, like we're always saying about a Gulf, you know, some Persian Gulf state or something. That's fine, but that that means you're not, you haven't gone very far. I'm just gonna ballpark two thirds the LCMS, maybe three quarters. One, yeah, 100 percent. Yeah. 100%. Because when we're talking about how fast certain populations move towards certain convictions, some people are never going to get there. During our revolution, estimates are going to vary depending on whom you're reading, but you're looking at somewhere between a quarter to a third to in some states, especially the middle states, Pennsylvania, Maryland, um, New York, some big percentage of the population attempts to remain, quote, neutral, meaning they don't want to pick a side, they don't want to have to care. And that's partly a function of diverse interests. They just don't care on the same level that people in New England do. It's also a function of the fact that if you have an option to stay out, which during our civil war, you don't unless you go far enough west, very small percentage of the population does that. If you have an option to stay out, like Mark Twain stayed out of the Civil War, you probably are going to take it. It's a path of least resistance. You're talking about human beings motivated by primal things like hunger, greed, worry, fear. And you're saying, here is a path where you don't have to put yourself in harm's way unless someone tries to explicitly come for your farm. Okay, I, I want to do that, right? So if that's going to be an option, then some large percentage of people in any given place, right, relative to you look back and it's like, it's the revolution. What a glory. You know, this is a it's called the glorious cause. Right. Or during the Civil War, you're going to free the slaves or you're going to defend your homes or whatever. Simple. Right. These are always simple slogans when you get into these kind of situations, simple slogans, easily memorable things. Some set of people are going to say, here's a really simple slogan. I don't want to starve to death. Here's a simple slogan. I want to take care of my own family, whatever. 
they can be convinced to stay home. The number of people that actually go anywhere to do any kind of fighting in the revolution is very small relative to the general population. There's no draft. You can just walk away, whatever, right? So if those are going to be options, then you're also dealing with a situation where you have to reckon on apathy. One reason I think apathy would be even larger, and I'm not speaking so much of our citizens as just all the people who live here, legally, illegally, whatever, is that you're going to have mass apathy. Yes. Because an enormous, yeah, because because an enormous number of people not only have whatever primal motivations, they also have absolutely zero stake in any argument between any set of Americans about what America is supposed to be. It doesn't matter to them. And that, you know, that that's something you have to recognize, right? Like wh whatever our official population was as of 2020, if you're dealing with years now of the biggest immigration we've ever seen, I don't even know that those guys are going to, I mean, yeah, some of them, um, People keep using the phrase military age males, similar to Europe in 2015. Military age males are coming in. Yeah, some of those people are going to be, you know, whatever. They're going to side with whatever the priorities of Chinese security services or Iranian intelligence or whatever is. Totally true. A lot of them are, are going to be, you know, first in line to say, I'm apathetic to this. I came here to get a job. And a lot of them will go home. But the ones that stay are, uh, how are you going to convince them to care about whether America does or doesn't have an electoral college? <laughs> <laughs> right. So when, 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 when you're thinking about the phrase civil war, I would at least push it back to the revolution, if not to other civil wars in other places at other times, Spanish, the German civil wars after the first world war. Rather than think, oh, it's our civil war. Here's there's going to be a righteous cause to pick. People are going to be lined up with it. You know, Texas is going to go a certain way. Texas is a completely different place if you live in Houston versus if you live in, I don't know, Eagle Pass, right? Yeah, I mean, the moment Texas starts an actual fight, I'm pretty sure they have to control some things inside at the same yeah, time. Right. Right. But I, I think I think my pessimism is driven by about large groups of people doing something or doing doing what I think is the right thing. Or, well, yeah, is driven is driven by the <laughs> idea that maybe on an individual everyday level, this guy could be convinced to defend his own family, especially under immediate threat. Mm -hmm. He mm -hmm. could not be convinced to do something particularly worthwhile unless he absolutely had to. So if I'm not controlling any kind of means of convincing him, then it's not going to happen. Bingo. Bingo. Right there. How do we have a narrative <laughs> that is discerned, call it controlled if you want, that we're all in together, right? Who controls it? Who tells that story? And I completely agree with you on the pessimism with regard to large groups of humans, especially pagan ones. I, mean, I expect fire and evil. <laughs> but I've I've just come to believe that the remnant on the other side of the fire is better off. And that that is the, the testimony of the witness of the Old Testament to the Jews that the Gentiles now may claim. And it's not about my congregation per se or my denomination per se, although it can be, but it certainly is about my family my life in Christ.
And so in that sense, I'm, I'm, I am an optimist on a broad scale, not in, in men to be able to unwind the fragmented nonsense that they have bled their eyes dry with by absorbing as entertainment for a hundred years plus. And you can throw the newspaper in as well. Yeah. The novel used to be spoken against as a dainty that would destroy things only for women. They said, man, I studied, I said early American literature. What a fascinating thing. Anyway, um, it, it, the distraction onto stories that divide versus trust in the story that unites, which is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And Lutherans, we can sit here and we can haggle over all the things we disagree about. And there are many, <laughs> and some of them probably aren't, are in fact, not needing haggling, but need discipline. But we can also recognize that our platform, that is who we are as Reformation Protestants of the first kind, with an Augsburg confession and a small catechism and the creed standing there in our book of Concord, that we're in a position to unify if we just talk, but we got to talk not about what I just said, right? I listed off the, the, the electoral college there effectively. We have to become able to converse with the simple man in simple terms. And I suggest that that just means biblical language, you know, just knowing your Bible really well. If there's something that the television displaced in the house besides the father as the one who would give light to the room in the evening, then it was uh, it was also displacing the scriptures as the ultimate light within the home and the reading of scripture as the gift of the Protestant age, which changed society if society can be changed. And with, with its loss now, uh, we are watching uh, that same society returned to its drags by hanging on to the Enlightenment pagan stuff that was there all along. I, I really don't think Plato is the answer to everything. Uh, but I think that you know what what democracy and republicanism is without Christ is going to be what it was. And I think what anything is with Christ is a new creation. And today is is different, sufficient, and and good. Right? So somewhere in there. Um, <laughs> again, I'm, I'm just still an optimist in this, although I completely concur with like, you've got me to this point, Adam, where I'm like, I'm ready to like watch it all burn and I'm going to sing and dance and pray. And then like, I don't know, get shot or die of starvation or I'm not sure, but I, I don't, you know, I don't feel this way all the time, but when I get a chance to talk about it, like I've thought about it, it doesn't bother me so much as when it was just a scary story trying to divide me from, well, really my own religion, I think. And that, that is what the zeitgeist wants to do, right? I, I'm, I'm not talking so much on an individual level because an individual's destiny is already, his, his time of death is already fixed by God. I mean, it's like, once you accept that, you literally don't need to worry about anything else. I mean, you do not need to be so obsessive or make politics your religion like people do who have no religion. I mean, that's fine. And a lot of Christians have a lot of difficulty understanding that because no one ever tells them things like you're going to die anyway. And they don't really think about the reality of their own death. That makes them extremely afraid and weird and ultimately unfaithful because they fear simply dying. They're afraid of something that baptism and the story of Christ's resurrection is meant to banish, which is the fear of death, the fear of men, the fear of those who can destroy the body. I'm talking more on the, on the level of groups and 
whether you're talking about the American Revolution or the American Civil War, I I don't I don't I, you can't watch it burn. There is no such thing. You will be sucked into it in a wide variety of ways, and it will be almost uniformly bad. I mean, the saying that that war is hell, which is a mm. paraphrase of Sherman, talking to military cadets, essentially high schoolers who have learned to dress up in uniforms and be excited for conflict and stuff. The reason Sherman said that, okay, and it wasn't some sort of like ironic commentary on his march through Georgia. The reason he said that was because the thing that human beings are always prone to underestimate besides the gravity of their own sin is destruction that is not under their control. Absolutely. Yep. Okay. Because of that, I, I'm not... I'm not I'm not terribly optimistic about what will occur because we're looking at a future that has been set up by a certain form of the past mm -hmm. and the certain form of the past that we have I'm saying is is already divided by nature okay like I I agree with the guys who wrote the constitution who at one point are so pessimistic about the capacity to maintain a country west of Appalachia as well as on the on the eastern seaboard that when they're founding Ohio okay <laughs> they're like you know some of us are going to move there so that if the American Republic falls apart we are able to found a new country okay because this issue of scale the scale yeah. of yeah, what yeah. we're trying to maintain and hold together is so insane. Even with modern communication technology, it's so huge. There are so many different kinds of people in it that you are dealing with a situation that feels untenable. If it feels untenable and pressure is put on it by, by, a, by a vast economic problem, by people's incapacity to buy homes, much less by a war, I am not at all optimistic about what will come out on the other end of it or what it will be. And I think that if you are able to imagine, like, like imagining your own individual death, if you are able to imagine the death of these institutions, it is much easier to think about what kind of energy to invest in things now. Yes. Right. And that doesn't mean that we're all going to invest energy in the same stuff, but it means that we will have a clearer picture of what might actually happen. So I'll just give you an example from the revolution and then, you know, whatever else we want to talk about, we're kind of winding down here on time is that you have a church that in many States is officially favored and, and established. And that is what we call the Episcopal church. The reason it's not called an Anglican church in America is because of our revolution. They, they couldn't keep calling it Anglican after the revolution. It it's, it's a church that needs bishops that has no bishops and the vast majority of its clergy choose even in places that are, that are very Patriot aligned like new England or Southeastern Pennsylvania, their clergy almost to a man choose to side with the British regime, or let's just say regime to keep the parallel going with today. Obviously that doesn't work out for them. In many cases, they are run out of their churches and they either flee to occupied territory or they go back to England. There is a remnant of that that endures through the revolution that is eventually going to have to seek ordination by bishops. 
from Scotland because the Scots don't feel the same way. They, the English just will not ordain Americans. It's why the Episcopal flag is a is an English flag with a little Scottish St. Andrew's cross up in the left-hand upper corner because the Scots basically ensured that they could exist as an Episcopal church. They renamed themselves. They call themselves the Protestant Episcopal Church. They do all this stuff basically to survive. The reason that they do survive is because they take the wreckage of their institution, the congregations that have remained to them, the people whose property has not been confiscated, which was a widespread thing that happened to loyalists, and they they build from there up. So something that you're looking at, especially when you're looking at localized civil war, is that whatever survives is what you're going to use to build in the future, regardless of what has happened to you. And however adverse the revolution was to what come to be Episcopalians, they they use what ha- what has survived in order to build something afterwards. What they particularly have to do is to align what they do build with a new sense of what America is. So they revise their prayer book to take out all the stuff that is obviously and, and explicitly loyalist. They even revise their confessional documents, uh, the 39 articles, to loosen, as the Presbyterians also did, to loosen their understanding of what they have to be aligned with in terms of a government. All of that is to say that (laughs) it's possible that everything goes away of what is familiar to you. It's also possible that you are able, if you are conscious about it, to use what does exist in order to build something new, but its its form will be scarcely recognizable to you. I don't think people are prepared for that because our experience in the United States of America of things simply going away is on such a long time scale that we're we're not prepared for things to go away as it were overnight under conditions of peace and relative prosperity when things go away they go away generationally right so if the episcopal church ceases to exist in the united states apart from conditions of war it will be in a generational and has been in a generational fashion right like the grandkids are not episcopalians anymore so it's going away going away going away that's a slow process with conditions of division savagery even violence you're dealing with things disappear overnight and they just don't come back. Which is why scattering the seeds is so important right now. And what I am really optimistic about then is these seeds being scattered by those who see that building on a past structure, a past system that is however you want to define it in whatever corner you're looking at, but godless, without virtue, without nobility, without hope. I think there's a lot of us out here more of us than them, really. And when we begin putting our attentions into those things which endure, then those things are going to endure and we'll be with them when they do. And if not ourselves individually, then those who are near us and who follow us to toward these, these higher things. So, you know, an armada of arcs right now, rather than one big city, uh, a bunch of us scattered. That's why, you know, if, if not everyone wants to help with your project, that's okay. Somebody will just keep going. Right? Keep doing. If you believe the project's of value, keep praying about it, and then the right answers are going to come at the right time in order to help the church of God on earth in Jesus Christ 
come through whatever they have planned for us and their prepared programming and their global agendas and their all of these things in which they forget that there is a God who is, is not sleeping. He's not sleeping. Comfort, comfort ye, my people. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You know where to find us or you wouldn't be here. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable, a college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran, a college that won't take a dime of federal funding, a college that teaches the best of our Western heritage, a college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's Word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional, liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest. Mm-hmm.